0: Hi, I'm Erica Pandey, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. It's Wednesday, October 20th, and we're focused on Latino homeownership. Almost 50% of Latinos in the U.S. owned a home in 2020, according to a report from a group monitoring U.S. Hispanic wealth creation. That's up 4% from when the report began in 2013. Years after the Great Recession, Latinos are now flexing their financial muscles and buying homes around the nation from Los Angeles to Phoenix and Houston. That's a key factor in building lasting personal wealth in America. But Latinos are still 2.3 times more likely to be in forbearance and 1.5 times more likely to be delinquent on payments than white borrowers. In a moment, Axios reporter Russell Contreras on the uptick in Latino homeownership and the financial troubles Latinos are experiencing. We're now joined by Russell Contreras, Axios' race and justice reporter. So, Russell, what drove this big increase in Latino homeownership?
1: Well, we don't know exactly, but we do know that Latinos are increasing their homeownership rate to nearly 50%. And this comes years after that Great Recession. This is the downturn that resulted in a number of Latinos losing their homes. So now there's been a rebound. A few years ago, the homeownership rate for Latinos was at 43%. So now it's at forty. percent eight forty-nine percent. This is a result of Latinos kind of flexing their financial muscle and buying homes, especially in areas like Los Angeles, Albuquerque, Phoenix, Houston, places where we had struggled with home ownership rates, but now it's on the rebound.
0: And let's take a step back here. I mean, why is home ownership among Latinos important right now?
1: Well, homeownership in the U.S. is viewed as a key factor for building personal wealth, and Latinos are narrowing that gap. But we have to remember that we are still lag behind our white counterparts. For example, the homeownership for white Americans at the same period, we're looking at the around 2020, was around 74.5%. Now, that's a nine-year high. If Latinos are not even at 50%, they're still off by a third. We're just barely two-thirds of what white homeownership is. So wealth for Latinos is still well below that of whites. We know, though, that ownerships for Latinos who own homes have a net worth of around $171,000. And this is 28 times that of Latino renters who, according to statistics, only have around $6,000 in net worth. So owning a home as opposed to renting really will increase your personal wealth, especially among Latinos.
0: Russell, what is the group that did this study, and and could you tell me a little bit more about them and and what they found here?
1: The Hispanic Wealth Project came out of something with a group that focuses on Hispanic real estate, the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. They decided in 2021 that they wanted to establish this initiative because of the Great Recession. Right around the time of the Great Recession, Latinos lost up to two-thirds of their medium household wealth according to this organization. And so activists within the organization, business leaders said, we don't want to ha- this happen again. In fact, we want to grow our wealth. So they set uh, criterions and benchmarks. So by the time we were going to reach 2024, they wanted to triple Hispanic household wealth.
0: Were there specific areas in the U.S. where we saw more of an increase in Latino homeownership?
1: Well, Erica, this particular study did not look at particular areas where we did see increased homeownership, but I do know in covering this, we did see increased home ownership in areas like New Mexico where housing is relatively cheap outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. We saw home ownership increased in places like Houston and Dallas and along the border in places like McAllen and Del Rio and El Paso. Because homes in those areas are relatively inexpensive, as opposed to those in Southern California or Northern California, where it takes a big down payment to get into a modest home. So places like Phoenix, the homeownership rates really jumped, and we're seeing those places grow. And if you look at the last census, you can tell which areas are growing and which areas are in decline. For example, Ohio saw a decrease in population but places like Arizona saw an increase. So those areas, Latinos are buying homes because it's more accessible, especially for first-time homebuyers, and it's more affordable. So we are seeing places like that grow.
0: This overall increase, though, in home ownership isn't telling us the full story, though, right? What does that 50% number not tell us?
1: Well, it doesn't tell us that around 15% of Latinos still live below the federal poverty line. And the federal poverty line is defined as 26,500 for a family of four. So 15 percent that's higher than the national average. I've been to places down in like Vado, New Mexico, where I've seen just abject poverty. And there's some places that are homes that are not collected to basic plumbing. This is also true with our Native American communities. So it doesn't tell us the full picture. Poverty is a major issue, it's something we don't like to discuss. Because it not only questions where we're going as a country, but it questions our personal wealth, what we're doing, why we do anything to tackle poverty. So that's still looming. What it also doesn't tell us is that Latinos are opening up business at some of the fastest rates in the United States. At the same time, Latino businesses are getting less than 1% of all top 25 venture capital and private equity firms funding and so that really prevents Latino-owned businesses from growing. Once they reach the million dollar mark of profits, they find that they have to take long high-risk loans in order to grow. And that lack of VC and private equity funding really stops the growth of Latinos in the business. So at the same time, we hit this glass ceiling, right, of home ownership. We're still limited in the types of homes. And we also have to remember that Latinos still face discrimination. When trying to get a mortgage, depending on someone's background, a bank could discriminate. Now, there are federal laws to prevent that, but there's a soft discrimination that sometimes we don't see that doesn't come out of reports that still limits where Latinos live and where Latinos can buy.
0: You've mentioned home ownership and business creation, two of the big ways to create lasting wealth. Both of those things have changed drastically during the pandemic. What does the future for Latino homeowners, Latino small business owners look like in our pandemic and then post-pandemic world?
1: Well, it looks like, you know, one of the fastest growing segments of our economy are Latina-owned businesses. We know that since 2007, they're one of the fastest growing segments of our economy. And Latino-owned businesses are growing almost everywhere. We have an upcoming story on Latino-owned breweries, for example. There are many Latinos who are starting to open craft brewer businesses. That's a growing segment, but yet you don't see them in statistics yet because they're so small. I was in San Diego. I went to one. I found out another one in Colorado. There's another one opening in Massachusetts. This is something that's fascinating because Latinas are opening up businesses without the cash. They're borrowing money from family. They're taking out banking loans. They're spending, say, past college money they had out for college to open up businesses. So they're really grabbing at the shoestrings and trying to build up a business without VC funding. So there are activists and business people who are telling, look, these private equity firms, you need to start investing this because... This is a huge market that is only going to grow, especially if you look by mid-century, Latinos are expected to be the majority in the United States.
0: And we've been talking about how homeownership is so key for building wealth and comparing Latino homeowners to white homeowners. What about other people of color? What do rates look like for Black Americans or Native Americans?
1: Well, for Native Americans, it's still small. And when I bring up Native Americans, I always have to bring up The caveat that if you live on a reservation, that home ownership is different than if you live outside of a reservation in a border town, for example. So it's really difficult to compare home ownership because the federal government has an obligation to provide shelter. We do know that Black ownership grew since the pandemic, and it was returning from levels from the Great Recession. But the Latino ownership has always been relatively low in comparison So as they get close to the 50% margin or the mark, they're actually growing larger than they ever have in the country's history.
0: Now, zooming way out, Russell, what do we know about Latinos' economic contribution to the United States?
1: According to a recent report by the Latino Donor Collaborative, a nonprofit firm, the total economic output for Latinos reached 2.7 trillion in 2019 that would be tied for the seventh largest DDP in the world if U.S. Latinos were an independent country. So we'd be tied for France and greater than Italy. This shows that Latinos, the domestic project has, has spiked from $2.1 trillion in 2015, and it's continued to grow ever since 2019. This is important because this is an untapped market, and this is what a lot of Latino business folks argue, is that There's this untapped market and this buying potential, especially in industry sectors like education and health and in professional and business services. Not only is this untapped, but when you add that VCs aren't investing in Hispanic-owned businesses, these companies not making more money, but it's also preventing a moral dilemma. Why aren't you investing in this company? What is stopping you? And that is a question we have to ask ourselves.
0: Axios' is race and justice reporter, Russell Contreras. Thanks, Russell.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Welcome back. One other thing we're watching today, how the rise of remote work during the pandemic is creating what we're calling third workplaces, places to work that aren't your home or the office. We've seen restaurants opening up their dining rooms as co-working spaces during the day to people who want a change of pace. Now retailers are getting in on it too. New York's iconic Saks Fifth Avenue has opened up a couple locations for luxury co-working around the city. You can subscribe to my tech and business trends newsletter, What's Next, at Axios.com slash sign up for more stories like this one. That's all for today. I'm Erica Pandy. Thanks for listening. And we're back tomorrow with another Axios recap.